Good evening, everyone. I'm Robin Mansell. I'm a professor of new media and the internet in the Department of Media and Communications. Um, I'm also deputy director and provost of the school. Um, tonight, we welcome Professor Philip Schlesinger, who is professor of cultural policy in the School of Culture and Creative Arts at Glasgow University. And he is one of Europe's leading commentators on media and cultural policy and on the cultural industries. He has received and led many, 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 many research grants from the UK and European funders. He is also the author of, of a number of a large number of books and articles, including his path-breaking first book, an ethnography of television news journalism, putting reality together, and no fewer than six books just since 2001. Tonight we are making the publication of two recent books, which Philip has just published, or we're marking a celebration of their publication. The first one is Curators of Cultural Enterprise, published by Palgrave, and the second one is The Rise and Fall of the UK Film Council, published by Edinburgh University Press. Copies, I think, have been available on, for sale, and um, I urge you to get one. Um, He's going to talk to us for around 45 minutes on the creative industries. We're also joined by two distinguished respondents, uh, both of whom are sitting here um, so that they can see the slides. Angela McRoby, who is Professor of Communication in the Department of Media and Communications at Goldsmiths, University of London. She's also a leading commentator on the creative and cultural industries. She too is the author of many books including the aftermath of feminism. And tonight, we are also celebrating her new book, Be Creative, Making a Living in the Creative Industries, this one published by Polity. And copies of this one, I believe, are also on sale tonight. Our second commentator is Jonathan Nealens, who is Professor of Creative Education at Wart Business School and also Research Project Director for the Creative Industries Federation. He's the author of many publications in the field of cultural policy and drama education. The respondents are going to speak for around 10 minutes after Philip's talk, and that should give us plenty of time for questions afterwards. So, over to you, Philip. Thank you, okay, thank and you. welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you very much for coming along and for showing how much interest there is in this topic. And thank you to my colleagues in media and communications for the invitation to speak. I've been increasingly struck by how difficult it is not to talk about the creative industries and the creative economy. And I want to argue that this has become both a conceptual and practical obstacle to thinking about culture and the complexity of cultural work. For the past couple of decades, we've been building a framework of ideas and supporting institutions that have led us to a dominant orthodox take on the value of culture as primarily economic. Is that surprising when we routinely see headline claims such as this, the UK government's creative industries economic estimates 2015 say that one in 12 jobs is in the creative economy 
the creative industries are said to account for 5% of the UK economy's turnover. Such statements depend on questionable calculations. At a fascinating panel discussion on the European Policy for Intellectual Property Conference in September, leading experts debated the complex nature of the right categories for defining cultural or creative occupations and industries. They also discussed the challenges of establishing robust national measures and the even greater difficulty of international comparability. No doubt, sound measurement is possible. At present, however, it is mantras of certainty that prevail in the public discourse, when really caveats ought to be issued. Measurement has also become the measure of all things, which I think is a problem. There is nothing wrong with calculation. Of course, it's how it's being used. The focus on headline figures has been central to ensuring that it is the economic value of culture that prevails in public discussion with government. Moreover, the measurement of public value tends to ape the processes used in establishing market value in what Michael Power has called the audit society. Other voices are sometimes raised. In the John Peel lecture last September, the musician Brian Eno questioned the very idea of the creative industries and queried whether the arts should be considered to be an economic entity. Eno argued for a view of art as everything you don't have to do. In a neat term, he talked about the seniors, meaning the capabilities of a whole community as opposed to the singular talent of the genius. He also commended the importance of major institutions that in his view and life experience have sustained the wider society. Instancing the BBC, educational scholarships and the dole which kept him going as he was establishing himself as an artist and which was hugely important to others. This sort of thinking is not in the present mainstream. Behind the headline claims about what our culture is worth to the national or global economy, the idea of the creative industries and the economization of culture have become increasingly embedded and naturalized. The evidence is before our eyes. There are creative industries conferences galore, and not a month passes without my receiving an invitation to at least several. On a recent quick search, I found no less than 30 universities around the UK, my own included, offering undergraduate and master's courses in the creative and or cultural industries and the creative economy. Our research councils have invested heavily in research into the creative and digital economies, defining the agenda, a point I'll return to. Part of my own work is in a centre focused on the creative economy, business models and copyright. It's called what else? Create. Now that I've fessed up, let me point to a much more significant example of how the embedding of ideas takes place. The future of the BBC is greatly in contention now, rightly a matter of international interest. It's still the UK's premier mainstream cultural and journalistic body, and of course a brand of huge importance in the serious global game of exercising soft power. In the UK, we're in the midst of a process known as the Charter Review. It's supposed to be an evidence-taking time, a period of reflection that occurs every 10 years to visit the BBC's purposes, scope and scale. 
and to result in a new deal for the British public. This time around, no secret, the review has been striking for the crude backdoor deals made over its future funding between the corporation's leadership and the UK government. There's been a deeply questionable undermining of due process. But that's another story. For tonight's purposes, I'd just like to note, as it dives for cover, how the BBC has sought to redefine its legitimacy. Its submission to the Department of Culture, Media and Sports Consultation, published in September, is called Guess What? British Bold Creative. It's not just the title, though, that proclaims the membership of the Creative Club. The corporation will become, we're told, and I quote, Britain's creative partner and a platform for this country's incredible talent and the work done by its great public institutions. One of the BBC's proposed public purposes, part of its very raison d'etre, will now be growing the creative industries and promoting the UK abroad. This captures perfectly the reflex, modal way of talking about the role of culture in the public sphere across arts bodies, support agencies, government, and indeed higher education. Ever-ready creative partners proclaim their virtue above all by being useful to the national or global economy. The case of the BBC reflects the increasing normalization of creative industries thinking in the public discourse. Fifteen years ago, Director General Greg Dyke pursued internal culture change by making what he called an aspirational value of creativity. But he didn't say he'd nurture the creative industries. His successor, Mark Thompson, announced the BBC's creative future and set up a commissioning system for independent TV production known as the Window of Creative Competition. But that was a quite different bending with the wind, a more light-touch use of terminological cover. Today, we really have moved on from that stage. It's actually more serious. The BBC's new buy-in to the creative industries agenda is more fundamental as it's likened to its commitment to the digital future. Well, how did we get here? How did the so-called creative turn become so pervasive? What is the creative economy supposed to be? I can retell a well-worn tale doubtless known to many here, and it could be told in several other ways with added refinements. And for the curious, a short reading list will go online with the rest of the slides and the text of this talk. But here's a thread, a way in. Most will agree that it was the marketing of the term creative industries in 1997-98 by the first new Labour government led by Tony Blair that firmly put this trope first on the national and then the global agenda. Creative industries discourse was developed as a political economic project. Expertise provided by think tanks, policy advisors and industry figures contributed significantly to shaping the policy process. Contrary to the view that the intellectuals are at best a marginal force in our society, that they have become mere interpreters rather than legislators in the terms espoused by Sigmund Baumann, we plainly have a public policy intelligentsia that is eager to shape the world through discourse and action. 
It's striking to note, I beg your pardon, creative industries, yep, uh, I think I'm out of kilter. It's striking to note how influ influential a single expediently written policy paper has been in this discussion. Academic authors would give their eye teeth for the citation rate achieved by the Department of Culture, Media and Sports definition on page three of the Creative Industries mapping document, 1998, cited not only in the Anglosphere, but everywhere. In a nutshell, the, the key move was to aggregate 13 distinct areas of cultural practice, to designate these as industries, and so to constitute a new policy object whose central purpose was, and still is, to maximise the economic impact at home and abroad. Moreover, by making the exploitation of intellectual property so crucial, the complexity of cultural value has been subordinated to economic value. Now, some have denounced this approach as the acme of neoliberalism, the celebration of individualistic entrepreneurship in a free market. As a corrective in their definitive new book on new labour cultural policy, David Hesmond Halsh and his colleagues have rightly pointed to the wider objectives pursued, the boost to art spending, the attempts at social inclusion. But this is not what has gelled into the prevailing orthodoxy. One influential take suggests that the conceptual journey started with the idea of the culture industry critiqued by Adorno and Horkheimer in 1947. This was reformulated in the Marxist political economy of the cultural industries to which media were central. This in turn was the basis for cultural industries policies pursued by left-wing policymakers as a response to urban decline and deindustrialization, and in some instances as part of the struggle against cultural imperialism. The economic imperative remained central, moreover, when it ended up as the arguably neoliberal creative industries trope forged by new labor. Ever since, this particular formulation has been used incessantly and widely, irrespective of political color. It would seem that creative industries thinking has become a kind of blueprint to be applied or modified. Read the official and academic literature and you will find that the number and type of industries may and do vary from one country to another. And then the cultural industries may be carefully defined as distinct from the creative industries, with culture often depicted as more fundamental or at the core of a society. This is just one visualisation that encapsulates these variously imagined relations. There are plenty of others to choose from. But after all the debate, what remains common and largely undisturbed is the overall strategy pursued by many states of seeing the creative economy as a policy object that can be managed to secure primarily economic outcomes and increase competitiveness. The economization of national culture is globally attractive. Any nation can adopt it, and policy transfer has proven relatively easy. The creative industry's idea is protean and can readily be indigenized to fit local circumstances. It can become the official policy of the Chinese Communist Party 
or a development ideology espoused by the United Nations. It can be used supranationally at nation-state or sub-state levels and in the region or the city. Consequently, creative nations, regions and cities are so much part of the, of the landscape that everyone takes them for granted, along with the curatorial institutions that invent new spaces, then mow their lawns and trim their hedges. Thus, what is called creative placemaking is an inherently restless, unfinished process, because new icons of differentiation have continually to be found. Here are some examples. And new policies have to be devised, the better to compete in film, TV, games or performances. Or new incentives have to be found to stimulate location and relocation. This means that the marketplace for cultural gabfests for the like-minded and the quest for advice by creative consultants is never exhausted. Nor, of course, is the continuous flow of academic commentary. If the UK and Australia made the initial policy moves, it was in the USA that the best-known interventions were initially fashioned. The economist Richard Caves was the first to offer a serious book-length analysis of the creative industries in 2000. His work avoided the now commonplace fetishization of the term. He wrote of diverse creative goods that had something in common, that the production of films, recorded music, the visual arts and cultural events and performances are all highly risky in terms of any calculation of success or failure. Caves' interest was firmly in the specifics of contracts and the industrial organisation of relevant sectors and how these played. He didn't create a unitary object. That was left to others. Only a couple of years later, another US economist, Richard Florida, in a very different, more popular style, took centre stage to hail the rise of the creative class. In essence, to sell the attractive notion that almost one-third of Americans could be classified as creative and that the world should now know that by making sure that local conditions were right for these cool people engaged in cultural work, policymakers could make a wide range of places into creative cities or regions. In a reversioning of Alvin Guldner's new class theory, symbol-manipulating intellectuals were transformed into productive creatives. It's a short step from the increasingly pervasive talk about creative industries to the follow-on coinage of the creative economy. The invitation to think of designated industries as systematically interconnected. The British consultant John Hawkins first effectively marketed this notion in a book published in 2001. Like the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, he laid emphasis on the value of intellectual property and the consequent global battle for comparative advantage. From this perspective, creativity becomes interesting because it is identified with human capital, which defines our qualities and agency as primarily having an economic value. For the most part, 
the creative economy has been a mobilizing slogan. It's been deployed along a range of cognate ideas and associated practical interventions. The conceptual parade includes creative cities, creative innovation, creative skills, creative education, and creative ecology. Moreover, as during the past decade, in particular, the digital revolution has reshaped policy thinking everywhere, the creative turn has spawned neologisms such as the digital creative economy to try and capture current transformations in production, circulation, and consumption. To note the prevalence of the economic dimension does not mean that other valuations of culture have been eclipsed. People may engage in cultural practices for their inherent satisfaction, the pursuit of aesthetic goals, their own fulfillment and interest. Craft sensibilities, such as the patient shaping of high-level skills or the fastidious making of objects described so well by Richard Sennett, have not disappeared. When it comes to making a living out of cultural work, although this is always intention, when it comes to making a living out of cultural work, though, this is always intention with economic value. The European Union, for instance, has made an, an interesting site for how that process plays out. In the past decade, we can easily trace how member states and the European Commission and Parliament have adjusted their thinking about the value of culture in successive official reports. While not all have taken up the creative economy cause with equal enthusiasm, the European institutions have increasingly adopted the rhetoric along with its accompanying economism. The cultural and creative industries are at the heart of the European agenda for culture, part of the framework of the EU's Lisbon strategy for jobs and growth. There have been efforts to brand Europe as the place to create, along with establishing new programmes, institutions and regulatory frameworks to support creative and cultural collaboration. Long-standing European Commission interventions to promote the audiovisual industries and cultural cities, for instance, now come under the badge of Creative Europe, a significant way of repackaging earlier schemes. The value of European culture, therefore, can be summarised in a familiar kind of top-line statement. In effect, that the creative sectors represent more than 3% of European GDP and employ some 3% of the EU's workforce. To be sure, the creative policy turn has not produced uniformity of thinking inside the EU, but it has impacted on how culture is thought about in policymaking circles. National differences, though, do persist regarding what to include in or exclude from the creative economy. The categorization of creative industries is everywhere deeply linked to measurement of employment, industrial scale, and tradable value. Because counting is what is politically comprehensible and has therefore become the primary mode of accountability. Talk of cultural and creative industries in the EU is a conscious compromise, acknowledging the primary value of, attached to culture by many member states. At a time of economic crisis, looking for solutions to unemployment and for products that will trade are at the top of the agenda. 
Alongside such regional shifts, as in Europe, the globalization of these ideas has perhaps been best illustrated by the UN's series of three creative economy reports, the first of which, published in 2008, called the creative economy a new development paradigm that covers all forms of cultural work. Diverse political regimes and distinct levels of economic development have shaped the specific take-up of ideas originally minted in London. These have been indigenized in East Asia, China, and Australasia. The Richard Florida Stable has developed a global creativity index based on weighting the presence of factors such as talent, technology, and tolerance in different territories. Some now argue that the latest of the UNESCO reports published in 2013 has represented a challenge to the dominant discourse and, in effect, is subverting it from within. Great hopes are placed on rehabilitating the idea of a cultural economy, with the hope that culture will be emphasised rather than economy, on the social rather than the individual. Although these views do not occupy the mainstream, this is part of an international counter-discourse to that of the creative economy. Interestingly enough, along with the movement occurring in UNESCO, there are signs that this revisionist current is being taken up in some national cultural agencies. It's perhaps odd, but, but telling that to get excited about the idea that there is more to our inventiveness and originality than its economic consequences is so compelling. Maybe we're at the start of a long march when policymakers will rethink how to intervene in culture. Maybe we are not. But that is still a work in progress. My own research on this topic, as I will show shortly, instead reflects the continuing power of received ideas. The institutionalization of the creative economy agenda in British universities has developed a pace. The bevy of degree courses already mentioned is supplying talent for a saturated and largely underpaying marketplace where personal connections count hugely, unpaid internships are common, in which precarious portfolio work is the norm, although this does not diminish its attractiveness. In many respects, this sums up the state of play for generations entering the job market as such right now. The UK research councils have been increasingly committed to research on the creative economy and the overlapping digital economy. Similar kinds of investment have been made in many other countries. A key, in, a key initiative here in the UK has been the establishment of five university consortia. These centres are now coming to the end of their four-year lifespan with uncertain futures. Four are so-called knowledge exchange hubs for the creative economy. CREATE, the research centre in which I work, is the fifth. Such initiatives mobilise significant numbers of academic researchers and organise their connections with a range of enterprises, artists and performers, public bodies and governments. I'm very positive about engagement of this kind because academics are also citizens and can benefit society by their knowledgeable involvement. We should use our expertise to play into policy debate and advice. That said, how we do this and on what terms is a matter for discussion. 
I'm conscious from my own practice of how difficult it is at times to be both engaged and detached and to remain clear about which role is being played at different times. And just how complicated it is to deal with the pressures exercised by specific interests to do what they want and to tell it their way. My broader point is that the terms of trade for academic researchers of the creative economy are not unambiguous. Although the programmatic approach taken by the research councils does not necessarily exclude any particular project nor preclude the possibility of critique, there is a continuous demand to demonstrate the relevance of your work to the driving aim, which is to build up specific sectors of the national economy in conditions of global competitiveness. No doubt, in recognition of this, there's been a small countercurrent of Research Council-funded work focused on the idea of cultural value. If anything, this underlines the need to ask questions about the priorities of research and how these are arrived at. As we draw to the close of this phase, it is heartening to see that more colleagues are now asking questions about how well this broad initiative has worked and what it has achieved. To put it differently, since the creative economy became a policy object, it has gradually given rise to a supporting creative economy industry, which is not only national but international. Here in the UK, academic research and publishing have become an important part of this, alongside the flow of reports from policy advisors, creative consultants, and the conferences organised by brokers such as the Westminster Media Forum and the Creative Industries Federation. So far, I have bent the stick in one direction. Most obviously, I've argued that the espousal of creative economy thinking means that culture is seen primarily as embodying tradable economic value. A self-sustaining, self-referential framework of ideas has developed that has become largely impervious to critique. Paradoxically, it is some of the most vocal advocates of creative economy thinking who have argued that policymakers are ignoring the creative industries. In this last part of my lecture, I'd like to draw on my most recent research to illustrate the present complexity of intervention by government in the range of cultural fields officially designated as the creative economy. Illustrate is the key word. I want to draw out some features of current practice in the UK and not to make generalizations. Although I do think that some wider issues are raised. I'm going to talk about agencies for which the creative economy is a constitutive fact of life, whether they are dealing with a specific sector or a range of highly diverse cultural practices. Cultural policy is certainly not exclusively concerned with economic outcomes, but the dominant focus of policy has set parameters for bodies intervening in the cultural sphere, whether these be arts councils, museums and galleries, public service broadcasters, operas and orchestras, or theatres and libraries. This takes us into the realm of cultural intermediaries, a little-studied area with which my most recent research has been concerned. In the past couple of years, I've worked with my colleagues at the University of Glasgow 
on two investigations of cultural bodies that are highly relevant for our discussion tonight. I can only say a few headline things about these, but obviously I do hope that some of you will be interested enough to read our published work and we can talk about these studies in the Q&A or after this event. I didn't think this way at the start, but eventually I realized that I'd ended up working on the role of cultural intermediaries, a term originally coined by Pierre Bourdieu. I'd like to use it here in a particular sense, to describe public bodies whose mission is to make the creative economy work more effectively in line with the overarching national goals pursued by states. And in that regard, although I've studied British agencies, the organisational rationales pursued are typical of many bodies worldwide that have been taken up to intervene purposefully in culture. You quickly realise the importance of the distinct institutional landscape within which such bodies work. Each agency connects with its political masters and funders, with its clientele, and a range of businesses of diverse scales. They are shaped by a distinct history of policy ideas, as well as fashionable thought about what constitutes relevant know-how for intervening in and building a competitive creative economy. Our team analysed the creation, life and death of the UK Film Council, which was based here in London. It's a piece of contemporary history and cultural sociology using documents and interviews with key players. Film policy, with its constant oscillation between cultural and economic goals, has been the model for the wider creative industry's policies now in place. But importantly, film policy has retained its distinctiveness, which to me underlines the continuing importance of a focus on sectors that can easily dispense with the creative industry's umbrella. The Film Council was the key strategic agency set up to bring sustainability, one of those weasel buzzwords, to the film industry and culture in Britain. It lasted for just over a decade, from 2000 to 2011. We've concluded that on its demise, nothing fundamental had changed. The film industry was still fragmented, but yes, there were some successes, Inward investment to the UK from the US went up. British box office receipts increased somewhat. The digitisation of exhibition was accelerated. Regional film funding rose. Ironically, Oscar-winning The King's Speech was an outstanding post-mortem success for a defunct agency. When the Film Council was set up, it involved lots of bureaucratic politics. The British Film Institute, until then the premier film body, with a primarily cultural role, became a subordinate institution. This was a strong signal of the preeminence of industrial purposes in cultural industries policy. The rest of that story is a lecture in its own right, and I'll spare you that awful fate. But let me make one major point. It's the first, the first new Labour government that created the Film Council as part of a wave of new bodies. It was summarily closed down by Conservative ministers at the start of the coalition government of 2010-15. When they decided to kill off the Film Council on supposed efficiency grounds, what did they do? They spent more money than they saved by shifting its functions elsewhere. In fact, they moved more than half the Film Council staff 
into the British Film Institute, which became, yes, the lead body for film. Now, the story is rather complicated, but such behaviour raises questions about the overall rationality of cultural policymaking, which in this case, at least, has lacked any long-term perspective. If you think intervention in the creative economy matters, then do at least try to give it some consistency of effort. Film policy in the UK has produced a scrap heap of defunct agencies, each originally set up to make things more efficient. My second case concerns an ethnographic sociological study that we conducted at the Centre for Cultural Policy Research. And this was of a business support agency, Cultural Enterprise Office, set up in Glasgow by a coalition of interests in in 2001. A true embodiment of the creative turn that has survived its contemporaries. The formation of Cultural Enterprise Office was absolutely typical of moves taking place all over the UK at the time. We found that over its lifespan, whichever party was in power, the nationalists included, intervention in the Scottish creative economy was modelled on the received wisdom produced by policymakers, think tanks and academics working in London. In this inherited policy framework, Cultural Enterprise Office has been assisting micro-businesses in Scotland to become more business-like. In the UK, most creative businesses are micro-businesses. That means they employ fewer than 10 people. Cultural Enterprise Office offers mostly soft business support, advice and training. This type of intervention is one of the key levers that policymakers use when trying to increase the scale and robustness of creative enterprises. On the evidence, it can really be hard to demonstrate the impact of such intervention to funders. This takes us back to the question of accounting. As with other such bodies, the inherent difficulty of showing unambiguous results has contributed to making Cultural Enterprise Office's position inherently precarious. The research evidence shows that precisely this kind of problem has been experienced elsewhere. One result is that such bodies are constantly hunting for funding, much like the working lives of the clients that they serve. Both of my studies have focused on the mediation of policy, the day-to-day implementation that occurs in response to the formulation of grand ideas. The directing framework has remained very tenacious and intervention is deeply influenced by it. But there is an interesting tension between the overarching vision of developing a creative economy and achieving clearly evidenced effectiveness in translating ideas into action. Whether you sign up to the creative economy idea or not, it seems obvious that once intermediary agencies have been set up they need to be given stable funding and institutional frameworks so that they can operate strategically within the sector that they address. Building strong relationships with policymakers, other business support agencies, and crucially, really understanding the springs of action of those who are engaged in cultural work. Of course, none of that guarantees that things will go smoothly, but they may go more predictably and allow the pursuit of long-term goals to take place. To conclude, the economic understanding of culture is dominant in public policy and discourse. 
and also prevalent in academic teaching and research council agendas. The omnipresence of creative economy thinking raises questions about how the research agenda is being formulated and the positioning of academics in debate. Creative industries policy has been very tenacious, crossing political divides in the UK. The ideas have become globally attractive and underpin a policy community and a substantial literature, a creative economy industry. In the, EU, in the EU, there has been a notable shift towards the pre prevalent economism, but not without resistance. The creative industries agenda has been globalised and indigenised through the work of UNESCO and other international agencies, although there may be an emergent countercurrent. If we stop talking about the creative economy, would anything be lost? Hardly. We still have a language for human inventiveness and originality. Nothing stops us talking comprehensively about the diversity of cultural practices that continue to exist, but which are overshadowed by a compelling label of convenience that has put the economy in the driving seat and shaped the public discourse so insistently. Surely, that's an invitation to think afresh. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Philip. Um, from creative practice, which sometimes enables some people to have a very precarious way of living, to creative economy, which is about the monetization and trade and global competition in cultural goods, to the intermediaries, which make the cultural goods uh, value to usually um, elite groups. So what role does policy play? What role do institutions play? Um, it seems to me that we have a whole range of challenges still before us, as we have had historically. <laughs> um, to comment, I'd like to introduce, for those of you who weren't here at the outset, Professor um, Angela McGroby, who's Professor of Communications at Goldsmiths College, University of London. She'll speak for about 10 minutes. And then she'll be followed by Jonathan Neelands, who is creative, uh, Professor of Creative Education at Warwick Business School. So, Angela, please go ahead. <coughs> so, uh, thank you, uh, Nick Caldry, for inviting me. And uh, I'm very happy to respond to uh, Philip Schlesinger this evening. And um, I'm just going to make about five points, two minutes per point. So I'll be pretty quick and I'll put my glasses on. Um, I would like to ask Philip really about the question of creative labor and how the question of work, working lives in this new creative economy actually function. Well, what are the consequences of 
our analysis of the creative economy for the many hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of graduates that we are training, that we meet with, that we talk to, that are in our seminars virtually every day of the week. So this has really been the kind of question that has compelled me to, um, to write the book that um, has just been published this very week. So let me very quickly say that um, I want to start off by saying that from my point of view, the creative economy, if we look at it from the point of view of creative labour, is actually, or, uh, it, what it indicates is quite a profound shift in transformation, something even perhaps greater than, than we might imagine. I want to see it as harbouring an absolutely profound shift in how we understand the world of the arts and the humanities and indeed the social sciences. I just want to go back to remind people of where culture started, if you like. And one of the great theorists of culture was, of course, Raymond Williams, who referred to culture as a way of life. And what we are now seeing is culture becoming a way of earning a living. Raymond Williams also talked in a very positive and rich way of culture as ordinary, whereas from the current uh, understanding or definitions of creativity is extraordinary. That is to say you have to be an extraordinary talented individual to be able to make it in this new uh, work environment. Of course, Raymond Williams also saw culture as being a public good, something that was, had a collective basis. And what I think we now see also in relation to Richard Florida's work that Philip mentioned is creativity becomes an individual asset, a bit of human capital, something that we have to nurture, something that is full of risks and uncertainty, but nevertheless that we can possess. It's an individual asset. And the, the point is to put it to good use in a competitive environment. So that's my kind of first um, point, really, to, to raise. But I would want to kind of dig a little bit deeper and suggest that what we see in this transition, this move away from culture as a public good towards culture and creativity as human capital, also is a subtle undoing of what we might call the welfareist paradigm. That is to say, in the earlier days of creativity, prior to the Blair government, there was indeed a sense of young people, talented young people, having access, especially after graduation or when they were young, to certain forms of entitlements um, that weren't based on extreme competition, that were kind of out there, if you like, forms of the dole, or what I think Nicholas Garnham wrote about, enterprise allowance schemes. There were kind of provisions to help people, and these were non-competitive and also universal. So there was a kind of, they were easily, uh, you could easily sign up for them. This, of course, now has been replaced by the kinds of toolkits that we've all become very used to, those of us who work in universities, mentoring schemes, business models, um, competition to be selected onto a social enterprise system, um, where you have to prove that you already are quite a successful entrepreneurial type in order to get onto such a scheme. So I think what we see here is actually uh, part of the general process of the undoing of welfare. And I would like Philip to perhaps comment on that, perhaps from a Scottish perspective. 
So I'll draw attention to the different kind of pedagogic models in place, um, including particularly uh, teaching about knowing your business model. And I know that is one of the kind of key terms. What's your business model? Because this is what the students I um, interact with. And then as one designer I interviewed last week in Berlin said, very ruefully, she said, I suppose it's called personality marketing. And she said that this with a sort of sense of despair. So I'm, now, some people might say, for example, when I talk about this to people who have already been working for a long time in the BBC, they say, oh, well, you know, it's always been like this. It's always been risky. It's always been short-term work. It's always been contract work. Um, pe young people have just got to get used to it. And I would say two things in relation to that. Often, older people in the BBC uh, uh, actually have themselves become very well established over the years as kind of long-termers or insiders. And secondly, the fact is it used to be that perhaps after 10 years or five years you would become a long-term staffer. No more the case. Actually, in almost all of the media industries, now we see people absolutely having to get used to short-term working. Or indeed, as I would put it, more than that, project working. So what I see here is a kind of labour reform by stealth. That is to say, as more and more young people, the, t the students we teach in arts, humanities and social sciences, are being encouraged, being uh, given lots of good quality teaching, <coughs> excuse me, to become freelance, to get used to freelance work, to get used to project working. Okay, we're all part of that. We're complicit with it. It's complicated. There's new possibilities there for antagonism, for tension, for interesting conversations. But what it means for the workforce as a whole is a kind of labour reform because those young people who have to get used to project working, even when they're aged 40 or 45, have got to get used to living without maternity leave living without sickness benefit, living without anything other than their own private pensions. This really changes the whole fabric of the modern work society. My last point, however, is that, and this is something that I notice very, um, very visibly and very tangibly in my, own, um, in my own position as an academic, Two things we absolutely have to take on, and this was a question to Philip as well, we have to somehow be able to engage with what I call the pleasure in work. That is to say, the fact that 90% of the young people who are doing our arts, humanities, media arts courses say, but I love what I'm doing. This is my dream. I am passionate about becoming a documentary filmmaker. How do we manage that in such a precarious uh, landscape full of uncertainty. And the last point is, it's, uh, or this is maybe more like a proposal, it seems to me that the logic and the more progressive logic of this new work society is to re-establish actually the importance of the university. And what I find with the young people that I'm interviewing and I'm talking with uh, over the years, like over a period of 15 years at Goldsmiths and carrying on, is that the university actually comes to be an important space for thinking, reflection, for uncommercial uh, debate, 
and, um, and for possible kind of reflexivity and uh, new forms of collectivity. So that's, that's my more, slightly more upbeat um, conclusion. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Alison. Uh, Angela, sorry. Um, Jonathan, please go ahead. Well, that was the upbeat one, was it? <laughs> um, I think I can agree with, um, with the analysis from, from both of you. What I'm not clear about is to what extent it might be a bad thing. Um, I mean, my experience over the last two years and working quite closely in the sector with policy makers and also creative organisations, cultural organisations one sort or another, is that I think there are three realities when you talk about the creative industries. I think there's a, an actual industrial reality in this country where people who make, do earn their living understand that there is a considerable flow of money ideas talents across a wide range of industries. I mean, you put that in simple terms, uh, the largest um, sponsor, commissioner of classical music in this country is the video games industry. We're all conscious of acting talent, directing talent that moves across commercial, not-for-profit, for-profit boundaries. We're all conscious of books that become films, that become musicals, that go back to being books again. You know, that's part of our reality. And those people who work in the creative industries understand that. They also understand, I think, that the notion that beauty, excellence, exists in certain arts rather than others is a nonsense. You know, the idea that art belongs to ballet, opera, theatre, visual arts, or what goes in museums, but doesn't exist in fashion, doesn't exist in video games, doesn't exist in commercial broadcasting, is clearly a nonsense not least because it's often the same people making the work, which in one domain is considered to be beauty and art, and in another is considered to be commercial, populist, whatever. So I think there's an industrial reality where people get it. But I also think people working in the creative industries, for some of the reasons that we've heard about the precariousness of, the, of their living, have forever been very pragmatic. So if it suits their interests to plead an economic argument to government and sponsors in order to get money to do their work, they'll do that. So there's a, there's a kind of pragmatism in it as well, where I think there's a, a willingness to accept what is a dominant policy conception because it suits the interests of those who are involved in the industry. I think also part of that industrial reality is to do with the spirit of the age in which we live. And I think, you know, we, we do live in a creative age. We do live in a post-technology age. We do live in an age where it's about what we do with the technology that we have that will make the difference. I mean, that, that's, that's the reality. You can't bemoan the passing of steam in an age of electricity, and you can't bemoan uh, the, the fact that creativity has become both an economic and an artistic objective you know, in a world that has got to where it is at the moment. You can't, you can't do that. Then I think there's a second reality, creative industries reality, which is a, a policy reality, which is ideological, of course, 
It is also extraordinarily fragmented. I mean, the number of different departments, sub-departments, organisations, NGOs and others who are implicated in culture and the creative industries is absolutely mind-boggling. And they will have nothing to do with each other, of course, and they believe that we still exist in the world where there are the arts and then there's everything else. So within DCMS, for instance, we have a clear separation between um, creative media and the arts different research departments they don't speak to each other the idea that film might be an art form is somehow alien and strange the arts depend not just on what the arts council put in but what education puts in what health puts in what bis puts in um, what local government puts in you know there there are all kinds of people who support it in all kinds of ways and that's desperately disconnected and it's desperately unhelpful to people working in the industry who want to be encouraged who need money for research and development, who need money for all kinds of activities, which is very difficult to access because of the fragmented nature of the policy sphere in which they work. And then I think there's a third reality of the creative industries, which is, uh, an, ac- which is an academic reality, you know, which we've talked about tonight, um, which is kind of critical of what's going on, but not quite sure of how to be critical of it. And for me, and I belong to this, I absolutely belong to this, it's, it's the legacy of a particular liberal intellectual tradition that wants to believe that the arts can exist outside of the market. No one and no thing can exist outside the market. That's the reality of the world in which we exist. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm saying that that's the reality of it. And to imagine that the arts can exist outside of the market is for me to depoliticize the arts just at a time when we should be politicizing it. Because I would love, I would love to be able to still believe that we live in Raymond Williams' world where the purpose of the arts in a healthy society is to agitate, provoke, disturb, please, anger, intimidate, people into looking at who they are and where they're going. I would love to think that we have this possibility of a healthy relationship between healthy arts, critical arts, independent arts, arts that that are offering something beyond commercial value to a healthy democracy. But it's not the case. The relationship between the arts and the public is broken. In the Warwick Commission, we produce data to show that the 8% of our society who are the whitest richest, best qualified and oldest get disproportionate benefit from the arts in terms of the publicly funded arts that every taxpayer and lottery payer pays for. So for me it's a, it's a political issue that goes beyond whether we talk about the economics or whether the arts are part of the market or not. It's a bigger political issue to do with capitalism. You know, The real concern for me is that the scale of cultural inequalities, who makes the arts, who accesses the arts, who receives the arts as part of their education, who's recognised in the arts, who's valued in the arts, where the arts takes place. All of that is a problem to do with capitalism. Not the market, but the accruing of capital onto a tiny, tiny minority. And it's not just economic capital, but cultural capital as well. So I'm more concerned with questions about who curates the culture, Are we really surprised at the lack of diversity? 
Are we really surprised that working class children receive least access to the arts than anybody else in our society? Are we really surprised that power, money and the arts are deeply implicated? Why would we be? That's the age in which we live. The arts, culture mirror who we are. And we talked about the number of freelancers in the arts and how precarious it is. That's across the economy. In five years, there'll be more freelancers than there are people working in the public sector because it suits capitalism to outsource, offer short contracts, not offer benefits, because in order to accrue capital, you have to cut costs. And the easiest way to cut costs is to create precarious employment for people. But even those going into precarious employment represent an increasingly narrow range of who we are. So one of the other great dangers of our time is that the range of voices, of traditions, of cultural experiences is being lost. It's not just that you lose Paul McCartney, you lose Eleanor Rigby. You lose, you know, you lose pictures of other people's experiences, which we did once have more access to than we do now because of the narrowing of opportunity, because of the narrowing of education, because of the, the curation of culture which is done by um, a social elite of a particular demographic, of a particular ethnic background. So, you know, that, that seems to me to be the problem. And let's take another, an example from today. I, I'm not sure whether to celebrate that the DCMS received less than 5% cut you know, what I'm absolutely sure of is that the reason why that cut was so small was because of the economic argument that's been made. This is a Tory government. That's what it understands. So that's the argument that was made, and that argument was won. But how am I supposed to balance that against 40% cuts to local government over the last five years and a 30% cut in the future? How am I to balance that when in Coventry the city council has to make a choice between funding the Belgrade or cleaning the streets? Am I supposed to be pleased that the DCMS came out of that well when what I know is that the majority of its funding that it makes available will go to an elite who will benefit disproportionately from it? So I agree with the analysis. I'm, I, I just want the political scope of that to be expanded a little bit so that we, we name the problem and understand that the problem that we're talking about reflects that bigger problem, and it's that that needs to be addressed. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Profound uh, observations from both our commentators. So, Philip, would you like to respond, please? <clears throat> I'll, I'll respond very b briefly because I'm really interested to know what people think around this uh, hall. Uh, I think I've been extraordinarily well served by the, um, the, the eloquence of, of uh, the commentators and the way in which what they've said is enlarges upon and is complementary, I think, to, to my own critique. Um, just to pick up one point that Angela made um, in relation to the pleasure in work I, I think this is hugely important I think it's a massive driving force and I don't know that it can be managed in, the, in, any, in any obvious sense I think that um, when people are 
truly animated to pursue some kind of creative pursuit or some kind of cultural work, nothing will get in the way of that, um, you know, until such time as it becomes impossible to, to find a sustainable living. So, you know, I think the, the obligation is, and it's, it's a difficult one, not, it's, it's to point out the problems, but not to quell the enthusiasm. You know, and I, I say this, you know, recognizing that it can have really quite adverse consequences for for um, you know, young people or people, you know, heading to middle age or even beyond. Actually, um, a brief word about Scotland. I think um, I, this comes partly because Angela and I have been having a continuing conversation, I guess, about this uh, in, in in recent weeks, but. Um, Certainly, in terms of the public discourse, um, the Scottish government has signed up to public service broadcasting in a really unequivocal way, although they do want something, uh, which is more control of broadcasting north of the border. And I think that kind of unequivocal support is actually quite rare in the British political space. So, you know... um, definitely applaud that, you know, whilst recognising that it it doesn't come without conditions. And secondly, I think there is also, um, because of the scale of the country and because of the, you know, the potential for compactness and rethinking the nature of the intervention, uh, it would be possible to do something different. And that there there is, as everywhere else, and, you know, as, as Jonathan, you know, I think, you know, has alluded, you know, kind of a, a battle going on between individualism and collectivism. And, yes, it is about how you manage capitalism and how you intervene. And um, there is perhaps, and let me just pick up Jonathan's point now, you know, there is the possibility of a debate about this. And I think what Jonathan did, and, you know, absolutely rightly was to say look there is a a deep underlying political question here Um, the problem is the tension between the acceptance if you like of the way the market works and finding the space to articulate a different politics and I think that's enormously difficult because it's very very risky for everybody who's involved in what I call the creative economy industry abandon your positions, and this is, this is institutional power, as well as the powers of patronage that lie beyond institutional power. Abandon your positions at peril. It's very, very chancy. You don't know what the outcome's going to be. Um, if nothing else comes of this discussion than to say, yes, there is a key political problem and it's undebated or it's relatively undebated, that would be a good thing, because... Um, of course, this is not just about talking about a discourse. It's talking about how a discourse functions to obscure certain things, how it, how it, how it operates to um, get us to act in certain kinds of way. And again, going back to what Angela said, I mean, it's, it's absolutely right that, that uh, people play the game quite knowingly, I wouldn't say cynically, just quite knowingly, adopting the terminology, filling in the forms trying to make the system work for them. Um, 
And in most cases, it simply doesn't because there are not the public resources available. There will be, there will be fewer public resources available. And um, you're, play, you're, 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 you're kind of positioned in relation to um, structures which really do dominate the scope for practice and the options available. And, you know, again, I think there was a complementary point made by Jonathan, which is um, how do you attain diversity? How do you, I, I, how do you engineer diversity into this? Um, which then becomes, in the present political context, an even more charged um, question, actually. You know, so so that the politics of how you, how you deal with culture in the, in the broadest possible sense and how you intervene in culture... I think has now spilled over, you know, and has for some time spilled over to much, much wider questions about the politics of identity and the coherence of a society. So nothing is going to be neutral here. But we're not actually having that debate, I think. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what's been somewhat dismaying. Okay, thank you. Um, questions? We can start having the debate now. <laughs> yes, there at the back. I'll probably take two at a time. Hi. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, Can you I, say who you are? And... Uh, my name is uh, Phil Hall. I'm an alumni, ex-student of this place. Um, I'd like to ask a question about advertising, uh, which has uh, been, I think, defined as one of the creative industries. Um, I couldn't read your 13 lists. I don't know if it was... Uh, one of the categories you put on the uh, slide. But it seems that advertising is one of the, defined as one of the creative industries. I would like to ask a very simple question. Was there some kind of controversy about this? And exactly when was it smuggled into being one of, you know, along with opera and, uh, um, you know, the theatre and so on. Um, it, it strikes me as it is a little bit of an uneasy bedfellow uh, with the rest. So um, just so, how did it happen and okay. when did it happen and who did it? Okay. Do you want, shall I take two? Or yeah, sure. Answer that? I could just answer that quickly. Okay. Yeah, you, you, want to, you, want the, you want to know where they live. Um, uh, Advertising was part of the, the original 13. I, th I think one of the things that this whole process of, of, of defining the, the creative industries makes you realize is the, the arbitrariness with which these lists were compiled and the speed with which the data to support the argument was assembled. And, and um, you've got to go back to task force that was set up in... 97, 90, 98, and it was just, if you like, expediently put there. Uh, it really took quite some time before there was any sort of serious critical reaction. And you might find advertising on some lists, and you might not find it on others. And that's really how it is. It's, it's, um, it pays your money and it takes your choice. I mean, it really is like that, absurd as it may seem. It, we're not talking about um, developing a sophisticated conceptualization here. We're just talking about throwing together certain categories of activity, um, trying to put a monetary value to them and saying, well, look, this lot is really important. We need to use 
we need to intervene to make them work better. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Can I, yes, can I just add to that? Uh, you know, I, I'm interested you pounce, that you've pounced on, um, on advertising, and I, I can understand why, but it, it gets to the heart of the complexity of what we're talking about, I think. Um, I don't know whether you've been up the tube in London, but you will find culture advertising itself down the escalators. And if we look at somebody like David Tennant, you know, we think of him as RSC, as having had his foundation as a scholarship boy at the uh, Royal Scottish Conservatoire. But, you know, in one week he was beamed as Edward II into schools. He was doing a Virgin advert. He was doing a British gas advert. He was on Broadchurch. He'd just come out of Doctor Who. So, you know, the, the, the reality, which is not that... Um, concerned with the politics which which I am you know the reality is that yes there is a movement between advertising and visual art and graphic design and and IT software there there, there is that movement so in one sense they are connected the the more difficult issue is around the connecting of previously non-profit public good services with always for-profit commercial services but I think for all kinds of reasons which are also to do with late capitalism, the blurring of the, there is a blurring of those boundaries now which makes it very difficult to make distinctions. So it's a random basket, but it's, got, it's difficult to unpick it, I think. Um, Nick Cooldry, the head of the media department here. It's been a very good debate, and we've ended in quite a paradoxical position because... Uh, Philip was arguing eloquently, I think, that, that public value has now been substituted for by market value. Jonathan, in his eloquent response or counter view, widened the scope and looked at the whole growth of capitalism, as Angela has also done, and really reintroduced the, the potential public value of the arts that needs to re-engage with these wider realities. Yeah. So we need the arts even more, yeah. and in the more democratic, less elitist form, as you very eloquently said. So the question then is, is the creative industries, cultural uh, industries, creative economy discourse conceivably the type of language we can use to get to the arts that you want? And I think I don't see how it conceivably can be. So the question is, where does the different discourse come from? What form might it take? Good question. I'm going to take one more question uh, that you ponder that, that for a minute. There's one there. This is relevant to the last question because isn't, wouldn't philosophical clarity of the way we talk about these issues help? All the descriptions have been based on a utilitarian idea of everything, all goods being equal. But if you listen to almost any artist speak of what, what they do, they'll talk in a way which is based much more on human expression and expression of something much deeper, perhaps. Existentialism, even. Uh, well, thank you, Nick, for that point. I think you're absolutely right. Perhaps this is the time to do away with the category of creative industries altogether and to find a, a lively and politically informed alternative. Um, one, and I've been trying myself to think around this kind of dilemma. Absolutely. And um, 
Maybe my starting point, however, is slightly different. That is to say, I want to be able to feel that the teaching I do, where it may well involve uh, entrepreneurship, I mean, I don't teach business models, I teach... Okay, um, if we are to think about the, in the light of the economic recession and high unemployment rates, let's say in Athens, if you are a fashion graduate in Athens... You want, and you're a young woman, and you want to have some kind of income. Well, what on earth uh, is wrong with trying to set up a small micro-business? It makes absolute sense, and not just in fashion, but also in arts, in theatre, in uh, fine arts, in poetry and writing. And in that kind of context, not just in Greece, but also in Italy and in Spain and even in Berlin. This is the kind of impetus to think in a different way about perhaps creating a different kind of cultural economy or maybe to resurrect the idea of the culture industries in, with respect to Adorno and Horkheimer and Walter Benjamin and other kinds of people and Brecht. So in a sense, I think... You know, um, categories are incredibly important. And I think that uh, if we can, we have to inhabit, as Philip said, we are forced to inhabit notions of creative entrepreneurship, but we can also refunction them mm-hmm. or uh, re-inject them with different kinds of meanings. So that's, that's the best I can Thank you. say. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... I'm I... I think we need to get beyond thinking that the market is the problem. We, we all go to the market, we buy things, we sell things, we perform in them, we, we do things for more profit or less profit. You know, we, we live in the market. It's capitalism which is the problem and which shapes everything else. You know, even our discourses, we, we joked earlier about how we could apply the same critique of the creative industries to, to the academy. And we, and we were, with respect, introduced according to the amount of academic capital that we had, the number of books that we had. So it's, it shapes our world. Why would it not shape the arts? It is absolutely essential, if democracy is to have any chance in a world that is as deeply unequal as ours is, that culture and the arts play a role in that. But how is that to happen when there is a conspiracy to prevent working-class children in particular from developing literacies in the arts that will allow them to engage with arts that are complex and difficult and challenging and provocative. And I think that's all deliberate. And that's what we need to address. How can we resurrect the arts as part of our public conversation as a genuine public good in the Raymond Williams' sense when there are so many forces working against that? Uh, Can I be a devil's advocate here and just come back? I don't know if I completely agree with you. Um, to say that working class or black and ethnic minority or women are absolutely disadvantaged in the field of creative education does not ring true to me. For example, in Goldsmiths, I rarely teach young men. You know, 90% of my students are female. I'm surprised when I bump into a boy in a seminar. You know, so I also think that one has got to recognize that during the Blair years there was a massive expansion in higher education. Every art school from Aberdeen to Falmouth 
has got courses in fashion marketing. And even though the access routes that used to exist don't exist in the same form, I don't think it's completely accurate to say working-class kids, black people and women have got no chance. I think we've got to have a, a more complicated conversation because it's, it, you know, likewise, I think that would be unfair on teachers who work very hard in secondary schools to make sure that girls get into where they want to go. Actually, you know, the, the biggest recruitment uh, for courses in the arts right now is in fashion, right across the whole country. You can fill courses... In, and their degree level. So I don't completely agree with you there. No, no, and you're, and you're right to, to correct me on that. And it's more children of primary and secondary age that I'm concerned with. We know that over the last five years there's been a 15% de- decrease in the number of arts teachers in schools. We know that in the last five years... Um, Five years ago, 55% of all children had access to music activities, and now it's only 37%. So, I mean, there's, you know, those children who stand to gain most, whose talents, whose experiences are most most crucial for us are having their opportunities strengthened. That doesn't mean they don't get through. Yeah. And interestingly, when they do get through, it's often through the digital. You know, and, and part of what we've not talked about is the digital transformation of this conversation as well. Right. Philip. There's a question over here. Yes, another question. I'm just asking Philip if you'd oh, like to respond. <laughs> 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 you like to respond? Um, yes, I'd like to respond um, very briefly. Um, I, th- I think it's a very interesting tension um, that comes out of deconstructing the official discourse, which I do think is necessary. I think it has been an obstacle and actually most of what I've heard although there are differences of view uh, suggests that it has got in the way. And then the the related question which which Nick has put his finger on and the lady over there is, is about well what kind of language does become appropriate and um, how do you get that kind of discussion going and what I'm very struck by somebody who has followed this debate for far too long and should now do something else um, is um, that we have not been having that kind of conversation Mm -hmm. in the academy so I guess the purpose of this provocation, if that is what it is, is just to put that on the agenda without knowing the argument. But sometimes it's really, really important just to say, well, hold on. This is, this, these are the consequences of where we are now. Uh, it's not doing the job that, at least critically, uh, I would want it to do. I'm not sure what the next step is, but there seems to be at least on, on this table, um, a sense that there should be another step. You know, and, and where you pitch it then becomes quite complicated. And I think both Jonathan and Angela you know, have expressed in different ways um, the kind of slightly tormented pragmatism that, that uh, <laughs> academics feel in this particular game, you know, which is, yes, we do understand it because we research it. We do understand what it is to engage with it. Uh, we all, in different ways, engage with the policy process, and we think it's valuable. Uh, we probably make compromises. We nonetheless may have some useful effects. Um, 
at the same time we make this impossible demand on others who have to launch themselves into this difficult stormy sea you know to 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 be reflexive and and think like us you know when we can have the the luxury of our lifeboats so i i think that um you know we 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 are at a we are undoubtedly at a paradoxical moment i think and I don't think that's a terribly bad thing, and I don't think one needs to be able to produce off-the-cuff solutions. It would be easy to come out with some discourse or other, perhaps, and say, well, that's the solution. I don't think you're going to get simple thought reform by revisiting previous debates, necessarily, and, 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 and thinking that different formulations are... The previous formulations can be rehabilitated. I'm not at all convinced that that's the way it's going to be. I think that... How this starts to get sorted out is going to be part of a much wider and more complex politics where this is probably not right at the head of the queue, but you know, it's, it's consequential on other things going on. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was one more question, yeah. I think we take one uh, more and then have closing comments from each of you. Uh, Nicholas Garnham. Um, I have a certain track record in this field, so I, I'm not associated with anybody. Um, I, I'd like to follow on from Nick Coldry's um, question and point out that, it, that I think we have to be aware that the creative industry's agenda started precisely as a response to the problems that John has pointed out. It was, it was an attempt to escape from the policy problems around, particularly around the Arts Council, um, which came from both the elitist definition of arts and the fact that they were very unequally distributed, and which was a, a, and this was was no longer it was no longer possible politically for a, a soi-disantly social democratic government to support such a situation, um, and some other way of dealing with the problem had to be found. But if one's going to go back to that debate, I do think one has to get rid of, one, the notion of the arts. The arts, the, the, because you cannot escape from a certain type of elitism and unreality once you have a, a category called arts. Secondly, the notion of creativity as something special to this particular sector. Um, this is a very painful thing, however, for the, for the participants in the area to, to get, come to terms with. As we found out, for instance, in higher education, a lot of the problems that come in higher education at the moment and some of the problems that Angela has addressed actually come out of the difficulties of widening access to higher education. People seem to have forgotten that. Now, I don't think this was ever thought through. The consequences have been unintended consequences, but we can't simply wish them away. And I, don't, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to unpick it, so long as we stick with not just the creative industries language, it's the language pre- previous to that, which is arts, culture, creativity, and all the rest of it. Because the, uncertain, the uncertainty in the creative industries... I mean, I can remember when I was an active member of the AC, what was then the ACTT, the Film Technicians Union, 50% of the card-carrying members of the ACT didn't actually work in the audiovisual industries any longer. That's always been the reality. They were antique dealers, taxi drivers, you name it. They weren't working in film and television. 
So this is not a new phenomenon, um, nor is the... And I think one can also exaggerate this rite of passage thing of freelancing insecurity. I mean, there's a good deal of evidence that actually in the employment market in Britain at the moment, that there has not been a decline in, um, in long-term employment for relatively large organizations and firms, and that the, the entry of the young cohort into the job market has always been characterized by relatively high levels of temporary unemployment and instability. So I think we shouldn't also rush to think that this is some new big, big turning of society. It's a, it's a perennial problem of how you dig in certain types of activity. And what has undoubtedly been, partly because of the ed- expansion of the education system and partly because of this rhetoric about arts and culture, there has been a, a, a ramping up of over-expectations. A lot of young people wonder how documentary film directors, God help us. I mean, there are more important and interesting and things to do for society than make documentary films. That's, that's the first message we'll have to get. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Um, because we have to stop at 8, I'm going to give Philip the last word, if that's okay with the panelists. Would that be all right with you? Of course. Yeah. That's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'd probably just win some popularity and put people out of their misery. <coughs> so I'll say uh, thank you very much for coming along. Um, <coughs> I, uh, if I do have a last word, it really is a last word, um, I, I'm actually really pleased by the way this discussion has gone. Um, uh, and I do have an association with Nicholas Garnham there, despite his denial. Um, yeah, we do know each other rather well. Um, the, you know, I think Nick does introduce a, a, a kind of a useful um, historical perspective in, into the argument, but I, I, I think at the same time um, we, we are on the cusp of the need for redefinition. The problem is so many people simply do not recognize it. I think I'll leave it at that.